0: you know, particularly in a criminal case, where, as I said earlier, the first presentation that the public hears is the state's version of events, um, it's very likely that it's, you know, that's the most sensational version, and that that's the way it's reported. And if it's high profile enough, that's the way it's going to stick in people's minds. And then, of course, there's, as the case goes on, there's often a lot of reporting that's done, some of it accurate, some of it not, particularly on social media, much of it not accurate, about other pieces of of, uh, information that would not ever be admissible at a trial and won't be admissible at the trial. And yet the, the prospective jurors are hearing this or reading this, and then you have to get them to unring the bell and say, well, I can ignore all of everything I've heard about this case and listen only to the evidence that's presented in court. That's just a very hard thing
1: to do. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a returning champion, one of our favorite guests from the past, Jerome Francis, Jerry Buting. Welcome back to the program, Jerry.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: It's been since 2018 since we last spoke to you, and that was at the height of the Making a Murderer popularity and was kind of an interesting time in your life. I think the Jerry Buting Cognoscenti are also aware that you've made numerous other television appearances for our audience. Jerry is not only one of the preeminent criminal defense lawyers in the United States, but is married to one of the preeminent criminal defense lawyers in the United States, Kathleen Stilling. And you were recently on 48 Hours about a rather interesting case. Would you care to give us a little insight?
0: Sure. That's really a fascinating case. It's it's still it's in post-conviction. It's on appeal, where the issue at trial was whether or not the defendant killed his wife and staged it to appear to be an accident or whether it was, in fact, a uh, sort of a random freak accident uh, where a pipe flew up off the road, run over or dropped off of some other vehicle that then sailed through the window and struck his wife, who was ducking, and uh, ultimately killed her. And the interesting thing about the case is that there is absolutely no motive and they looked very, very, very thoroughly for any kind of motive that this guy would have to kill his wife. And, you know, there's no infidelity, no life insurance, no financial problems, no domestic abuse at all. The time frame when he would have supposedly just for some reason snapped would have been like 20 minutes from when he was last seen by their adult children to when the accident occurred, and that somehow he just, you know, came up with this whole idea to stage an accident, you know, randomly. I mean, they, they really had no explanation for why he would kill his wife, where he killed his wife, or really even how, other than his explanation that this was a random accident, vehicular accident. And all you gotta do is Google, type through windshield. And it's shocking how many images and stories you come up with of um, almost exactly the same kind of accidents. People are very careless when they, particularly amateurs, they don't secure their loads. And um, pipes and all kinds of debris fall off of these uh, vehicles and can be a real danger to oncoming or passing vehicles, as as we believe happened here. So... Despite all of that, the jury convicted. We think that there were some serious mistakes in the trial, the way it was presented. And so now it's on appeal.
1: So let me just help our audience visualize for a moment what you're saying. I gather that the husband is driving the car and that the wife is in the front passenger seat. Is that accurate?
0: That is correct.
1: And that he asserts that a pipe came through the windshield and brought about a fatal injury to her.
0: That is correct.
1: How do they say she was killed?
0: They don't have any real explanation for where she was killed or how, certainly not why. As I said, there's this 20 minute gap from when they, they left home with their adult son, hearing no argument, you know, ordinary morning, to when the 911 call is made and just a couple of miles from their house. So they really were left with the argument that somehow he just snapped and killed his wife, but they really didn't explain or offer uh, where it was supposed to have happened. Did he he somehow beat her in the, in the cars they're driving? Does he stop somewhere? They look, by the way, the entire route from their home to where the accident occurred, look for any evidence of, of a, you know, a site where they could have stopped and where he might've killed her outside the car. Nothing, nothing at all. So it's, it's really a, one of the big problems was there was a, a very young medical examiner for the state who testified and was given you know minimal information when she first examined the body, was told that, that um, she was le- left with the impression that the story was that she was struck in the head with a pipe, like in the forehead, like impaled and okay. the injuries weren't consistent with that. And so she rendered this opinion that the injuries weren't consistent with the, a vehicular accident. But the defense failed to consult with or present a counter forensic pathologist who could present a different opinion. And we did. We presented a more experienced one who said, "No, these injuries are entirely consistent with what we see in a motor vehicle accident." And and so that was a big issue in terms of, uh, I think the strength of the state's case is they have an expert who says these injuries aren't consistent with his version of events. And there was a number of other problems in the way the case was presented for the defense. And uh, he, so ultimately we're, we, we've had, we presented our evidence post-conviction, new experts to explain what really could have happened. And um, Ultimately, it's going to be up to the Court of Appeals to decide.
1: So one of the things these things get on television, whether it's in the context of making a murderer 48 hours or 60 minutes or any of these things, because they are controversial in nature. And anybody who watched Making a Murderer closely or is familiar with this case is left with the view, in my opinion, that there at least was reasonable doubt in the unusual circumstances of things. And I guess I wonder if you have a view of why jurors have such difficulty accepting reasonable doubt in cases where it seems so obvious.
0: Well, I think part of the problem is that the reasonable doubt is a, is a standard and and the burden of proof is not something that you deal with in everyday life. You know, typically, we make decisions, we want to hear both sides, and we sort of weigh one against the other. And that is not what the criminal legal system is based upon. It's, it's based upon the state proving beyond a reasonable doubt and that they have the entire burden of proof. And so it's challenging sometimes when, particularly in a high profile case, the presentation that's first put out there into the media, into the public's awareness is one of guilt, because it focuses on the charge. There is no defense yet. And so all the, the public hears is the, the state's argument, in the light most favorable to the state, without any countervailing evidence. And so the jurors then come into trial, really with pre pre preformed opinions of guilt or innocence. and they're supposed to be weeded out. The ones who can't set aside those opinions and really be fair are supposed to be weeded out in jury selection. But all too often, I see courts that really don't take the time or the effort to really do that. They're they're more worried about keeping jurors on than they are about getting rid of those who really shouldn't uh, sit at the trial because they can't be fair for one reason or another.
1: How honest do you think people are in response to questions like that?
0: You know, it's it's just like humans. They're all over the map. Some of them are very honest. Some of them are not some of them particularly in high profile cases want to be on a trial and for anybody who's sat in a jury uh, on jury duty when somebody wants to be on a 5 or 6 week trial that's sort of a red flag that you know what is it what agenda are you coming into this case with so some of them may have free, preformed opinions and just not be honest about it you know for first of all it's not easy for people to admit to bias the word bias itself has a connotation that we don't want to admit or prejudice sure Certainly prejudice. Um, and yet we all have them. We all have prejudices and biases and they don't need to be racial or they can just be based on all kinds of past experiences in our lives. Some people are maybe close to or the pro- actual victims of sexual assaults in their past. and they would not be it would be hard for them to set aside that experience to judge fairly in a case involving the same kind of offense. So some people are honest enough to say, you know, I just don't think I could put that aside. But many, unfortunately, are not. And then it's up to the judge initially and then the attorneys to try and weed out those people who you think aren't really being either honest with the court or honest with themselves about their abilities to set aside those preformed opinions
1: so you know there the process our audience may not know about is called voir dire and it's asking questions of prospective jurors in advance of trial to ascertain whether they have prejudices or things that would inhibit their ability to be fair in Maryland we have one of the worst systems in the United States in that we are not as lawyers allowed to ask the voir dire questions we merely are allowed to propose questions for the judge to ask and of course it's one thing to ask a question and then it's another thing to you follow know up. To follow up and and to really probe into things that people might kind of hint at but not you know people equivocate sometimes and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their public peers but it makes it almost impossible to really have a, a truly fair jury unfettered by bias or prejudice in Maryland cases. Is Wisconsin the same, or do you all get to do your own voir dire?
0: Wisconsin is not the same. In federal court, that's also generally the same. The that, that okay. federal judges, it's it's pretty rare in federal courts all over the country for the defense or the prosecution to be able to ask questions directly of jurors during jury selection. Wisconsin Generally, you can, the attorneys for both sides can ask questions, but it's not guaranteed. And so many courts in the, in the interest of expediency, trying to move the process along, are taking that away and saying, I'm going to do all the questioning, or I'm going to start off with the questioning, and the attorneys can't follow up on any of the questions and subjects I've already asked. You have to ask completely different ones. So, you know, it's... Uh, you know there's nothing in, like inherently wrong with the idea of judges asking the questions if the judges really take the time and don't have an inclination you know looking at the clock and worried about moving their calendar along all the time but rather really delving into you know what this juror feels about the case and whether they can really be fair or not and it's just my experience that the vast majority of judges aren't inclined to do that so instead of that, at least you have a better opportunity with the, with the attorneys asking questions. But both sides typically then have what's called peremptory challenges where you can, right. you can get rid of a certain number of jurors on your own. And you know the court on its own or on the motion of one of the parties can strike a juror for cause. Uh, but even if you can't, Get a juror struck for cause, and you just don't think that juror is being honest with themselves or the court, or for whatever reason they're not going to be fair. You can s- strike them yourself, but you get a very limited number—usually f- three, five, seven—in a homicide case in Wisconsin at most. So it, you know that doesn't give a lot of opportunity to, particularly in a high-profile case, to really weed out jurors who are um, who are biased because of pretrial publicity.
1: Yeah, I was going to get into that next. I just wonder how much of a role you think the media plays in kind of bringing about preconceived notions on the part of of prospective jurors.
0: I think it has an enormous role. It always has had an enormous role, really. And nowadays, it's not just the quote-unquote mainstream media. It's also social media. And, you know, particularly in a criminal case, where, as I said earlier, the first presentation that that the public hears is the state's version of events, Um, it's very likely that it's, you know, that's the most sensational version and that that's the way it's reported. And if it's high profile enough, that's the way it's gonna stick in people's minds. And then of course, there's, as the case goes on, there's often a lot of reporting that's done, some of it accurate, some of it not, particularly on social media, much of it not accurate about other pieces of of, uh, information that would not ever be admissible at a trial and won't be admissible at the trial. And yet the the prospective jurors are hearing this or reading this, and then you have to get them to unring the bell and say, well, I can ignore all of everything I've heard about this case and listen only to the evidence that's presented in court. that's just a very hard thing to do. Takes
1: a lot of discipline. It does. It's sort of an intriguing thing, because when I hear you talk about this, there's a part of me that feels like, uh, and I'm I horrified to say this, that Trump's lawyers uh, all invariably seem to push back, even in the context of criminal proceedings, and get their own story out to the media as best they can. And one wonders if that would be an effective thing to do. You know, the state sensationally rounds up the suspect and brings him in, and here's all the evidence. And what if the defense were to go to the media and say, well, there's this hole in this evidence and this hole, or is that kind of giving away what could be an effective defense in preparing the prosecution to anticipate their weaknesses?
0: Well, there's two problems with that. One is one of there are ethical constraints on a lawyer making extrajudicial, that is, outside of the courtroom, statements about a case that, that are... are um, intended to or potentially could influence the jury pool Isn't
1: that what the prosecution is doing
0: prosecution is also limited and in fact they're more limited in lots of ways but they get around it a lot of times because it's not the prosecutor him or herself who makes the press conference it's the police officer or the police chief and the um you know we have a we have a first amendment in this country that that doesn't allow prior restraint of, um, of speech. In, in other countries, it's illegal for reporters to even report on information. They can be held in contempt of court if they're presenting information that's outside of what's learned in court. And you can't do that in America. And so, what we've tried to do is rein in some of that prejudice by limiting the lawyers ethically, but it doesn't apply to police officers. The other problem with it is when you get onto a case, that's when the, the publicity is often the highest, you know, it's the alleged perpetrator has been arrested. They do the, the, the staged deliberate perp walk to make it look like the guy's guilty and handcuffs uh, and dangerous as well. That's all designed and orchestrated, frankly, for the media to let the public know, hey, we're doing our job, right? You know even when dropped, they may be making the wrong judgment and they may have arrested the wrong person. Um, nevertheless, so all of this publicity comes out at the beginning. And and the defense handicap is that if you are just hired on the case or just appointed as a public defender, you don't know what the evidence is. All you get is this this bare bones statement of what the state says the evidence is in the light most favorable to them. And so you have to be careful about Other than saying my client's not guilty, and we have to hear about wait and hear about this in court, you don't want to go too far out on the limb about what the evidence might be if you haven't even seen the police reports or the crime lab reports. So, for instance, in this in the uh, Stephen Avery case, for those who watched Making a Murderer, the prosecution held this extremely prejudicial press conference and described the deep this horrific detailed supposed confession of a 16-year-old boy implicating Stephen Avery and talking about this violence and bloody, you know, stabbing and shooting and strangling, horrific murder and torture and rape that would have caused a great deal of physical evidence. And they made it seem like there was physical evidence to back it up. Well, we knew that the story wasn't true, but until we'd actually seen the the, the crime lab reports we didn't know that in fact at the time of that press conference the prosecutor knew because he did have the crime lab reports and he knew that there was no evidence of any kind of brutal murder having occurred where this supposed confession this kid said it did so you know but by the time we we get those reports it's a month or two down the road it's um it's hard at that point you can't call a press conference and say hey This is what the evidence shows. You know, we would be found in contempt of court if if the defense did that.
1: Well, what if the defense police, which is a concept that we've talked about for years, were able to say we're having a news conference to show that the prosecutor is a big fat liar and all this evidence he talked about in the media is a bunch of baloney. I wonder if that could be an effective thing or whether that's going to result in some negative consequences also.
0: Well, you know, if, if it's a private investigator working for the defense attorney it's unlikely that that's going to fool anybody that's going to look like it's obviously orchestrated by the defense and that they're acting specifically as an agent for the defense the the police get away with it more because they have this dual role they have a role not only to investigate a case but to protect the public and to let the public know if they think that there's somebody armed and dangerous out there still, or if they, they want to try and put the public at ease thinking we've got the right guy and he's in custody now, so you can relax, have no fear. That's usually the way they, they justify making these kinds of uh, press conferences that they do right at the beginning of the case.
1: Well, a lot of, also a lot of prosecutorial offices are politicized. One of our impending guests who I think a great deal of, Rich Gibson, is the is the Howard County State's Attorney here, and I think is a person of integrity. But everybody, you know, in Maryland, if you're state's attorney for any given county, you're running for office. And I am confident that if you are out making pronouncements about keeping the community safer and trying to demonstrate it, that that probably is effective politics.
0: It is. And to some extent, there's There's a um, a healthy transparency. The public needs to know whether or not law enforcement, prosecutors are doing their job. But it is, you're right, it's too easily abused for political gain solely. And that's one of the problems when you've got elected offices like that, particularly with people who are ambitious and are using that office as a stepping stone to a higher office, often a, a court appointment as a judge. Or or lower court judges who have ambitions to raise rise higher into the appeals court or the Supreme Court. You know, electing judges I think is a is a grave mistake that we've we've uh, really only about half of the states still do elect judges. The other half are are appointed and and many of them with merit panels that kind of weed out. I don't know, the purely patronage risk, um, but. Uh, you know, electing judges is very difficult to expect that an elected judge is going to to make a controversial decision, even if the law requires it.
1: You, you and I have kicked this one around a fair amount, and I, I always indicate in Maryland it was the way that our Judicial bench got integrated that you had places like Prince George's County, which has a million people. And when I was first practicing it, it, there was one black judge in Prince George's County, and it has evolved to reflect the population now. And a lot of that was because there was the ability to run against whoever the governor appointed. And so I, I agree with you that it's a problematic situation, but at least in our state, it really has helped. Even here in Howard County, the uh, judge was elected who had not been appointed by the governor. And so there, it's one of those tricky things to balance, I guess.
0: It is. I mean, it's it's an age old debate. You know, the, when you look at the Wisconsin became a state in 1848, and when you look at the constitutional. Newcomer. Re, yeah, Right. Relative newcomer <clears throat> you you see that even then the same kinds of arguments were being made on whether they should make judges elected or appointed and so it you know it's a tough call the 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 hybrid compromise seems to be the commissions um, that create a panel of of applicants that the, the governor then appoints, and then there's like a retention election, so they can still be kicked out of office. So that there's some response from the electorate, but anyway,
1: you know we kind of have something like that here. So let me take us back a little bit because I think you hit on some things that might also explain the difficulty of application of the proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard. That you know one of the things that made making a murderer so compelling is you'd watch one episode and you go, "Oh, the guy's guilty," and you'd watch the next episode, you go, "No way, he's guilty," and it's kind of the back and forth thing and the podcast Serial, which is how I was first ever introduced to podcasts, had a similar quality to it. And and you just it's hard to understand in any of those cases how a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt came. And yet I wonder if some of it is stoked by public fear of crime and political overhyping of crime and that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: It definitely is, Uh, you know, because there is a, a fear that and this is unfortunate. People don't realize that in many cases, if you convict the wrong person, if a fact of crime occurred, if you convict the wrong person, then you're not enhancing your safety. You're you're making it worse because the real perpetrator is out there. Right. In fact, in Stephen Avery's first wrongful conviction, where he spent eighteen years in prison for a rape he was proven not to have done the later DNA proved that the actual perpetrator of that rape had gone on to rape another woman and possibly others as well. But, you know, it, there is this, this fear of, of, you know, it, it used to be hundred years or more ago that the common phrase was, it's better to allow 10 guilty people to go free than to convict one innocent person. Nowadays, I think that's kind of flipped on its head, and and people, frankly, would say, "Well, maybe that's the cost of doing business. If we convict, you know, ten people wrongly, as long as you know we don't take the risk that somebody else is um, is guilty and, and gets off." But of course, that's only true when, and, until it happens to your loved one or your friend or colleague who's wrongly convicted and it spends decades, often in prison, before. If they're lucky enough to ever get exonerated,
1: I do wonder if that's a function of the modern politics. And, you know, it's people seem to inculcate fear on the part of their viewers and listeners, and they want to go out and buy extra guns, and they're all worried about things. And very often the things they're worried about are maybe exaggerated or fictionalized. Do you see that in Wisconsin?
0: Oh, absolutely. But I, I would say that it's, it's, um, it's not new, it's not a fixture of just modern politics. you know, pedagogues have been around back to Roman times and um, if not earlier
1: even. Do you remember those days?
0: Uh, I don't, but it's it's obvious, you know, the, the, the historical records' clear that, that that people have have used various techniques to try and influence the populace into their side, under their. Sure. And fear is a powerful motivator. You you see it in elections, you, know, you think about the LBJ campaign when he, they show the exploding atomic bomb and the uh, Willie Horton ads for in the Dukakis campaign. So politicians have learned what's happened, I think, is that campaigns have gotten much more careful and slick about how to influence people with fear, oftentimes not directly by using dog whistles, as we call it, you know, sort of subconsciously raising those kinds of fears in people to encourage them to elect them, not somebody else. And so that's maybe gotten a little more sophisticated in the modern day, but um, it's been around for a long time.
1: I did find the Dominion and Fox trial quite enlightening that, uh, What they were saying on their shows all the time was one thing. And what they were saying privately was exactly the opposite.
0: Yeah. And that's, that was a very interesting window on, on, you know, the corporate news uh, environment of what goes on behind the scenes. You know, it's, it's uh, everybody's known that for a long time that, that um, they need to drive ratings and that, you know, sex cells, sensation cells, you know, and so that's why we often see all left, right, center uh, trumpeting one side of, of versus the other. But to, to go to the extent where you're actually, where you've got actual anchors or reporters privately saying that this is completely false information, and yet we're going to feed it to our viewers because it's the red meat they want.
1: And we don't lose them to another station.
0: Right. That's... that's uh, there really should be some consequences for that.
1: So what do you think you do about the media? You've dealt with them quite a bit. Are there ways to make them more careful or more honest?
0: You know, the best solution, I mean, again, with a First Amendment in this country, it's very difficult to rein them in completely, but with the, you know, the best Response is to is to have a more educated public and to uh, let them understand that they need to listen to to uh, the media with a grain of salt. Now, unfortunately, Trump has used that to his advantage, really, and and made it to but uh, what you know we don't know what we can believe anymore. There, of course, used to be pretty stringent network ethical constraints on what what they could report, and they had to be. Uh, fact-checked and um, resource uh, sources of information had to be verified and all that before they could even put something on the air now with social media doing it you know immediately without any fact-checking it's very hard to do that
1: uh, well and so, then you have foreign nations doing it to sow right. discord in our country
0: that's right yeah propaganda or to sort of sow discord in your own country you know the 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 Germans, the Nazis were ex- exceptionally good at that. Terrible. Um, so, you know, it's an age old problem. It's something that we need to teach in schools. We need to, to uh, get people to read as much as possible or watch as much as possible from not just one silo. Um, you know, I find myself often turning uh, to MSNBC, CNN and Fox just to, to get the upper, a uh, whole spectrum of perspective on Particular news story. And sometimes you can predict what's, you know, uh, something about Trump might be on the air at, at, on MSNBC and he turn over to Fox, and it's something about the border. Uh, you know, they, they or have, Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah, or Joe B- or Hunter Biden, right. Yeah, so yeah. They, they do have their own little interests that they think their viewers are going to be most interested in, but it doesn't hurt, in my view, to to try and sample from all of them in order to get a better sense of what where the truth really lies.
1: So I regret to say that we have run out of time in this first segment of the show. If you would consider sticking around, I think there are some additional things that we could cover that might be of interest to our audience.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to.
1: All right. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Thank you for listening.
0: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.